Well, this morning, we will get into the book of Ephesians in just a moment, um, but I wanted to make a special announcement. In your bulletin, you'll see that we are launching over the next few weeks um, an effort to close out our Phase 2 giving. For those of you who've made a pledge and those of you who've come along since we launched that Phase 2 giving, uh, the work finished up late last year, and we are finishing up our pledges by June 15th. So you have four weeks left to finish up whatever pledge and commitment you made uh, and we're calling it the finish line. Cross the finish line together by faith. And I want you to know that whatever pledge you made is really important because the bank has told us at the end of all the expenses and, you know, the guessing, we have the actual cost of the project. And the bank has told us that we are required to give 100% of the amount that was pledged. So if you made a pledge, uh, we need everyone to do their part and more. And I'm going to share the and more in the weeks ahead. So we need you to be able to fulfill your pledge in addition, if this has become your regular church home over the last few years, I'd ask for you to perhaps over the next four months to make a uh, commitment to this phase two fund as we close it out. The reason being, we uh, don't like debt, and the more we can pay off those uh, bills for the addition that was put on the church, uh, the, the more then we won't have that interest that we're paying, and we can free up that money for other uh, ministry expenses. So please consider over the next four months how you might fulfill your pledge, and uh, if the Lord has really blessed you and you're able to give more than your pledge, now would be the time. Uh, now would be the time. And if you're newer to the church and you'd like to just contribute something, I'd love for this to be a 100% participation. And so more details will be coming on that in the weeks ahead. All right, we are going to be in Ephesians 1, verse 7 today. You can open up your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verse 7. Have you ever had a problem... And you had to trace it back to the source. I was sitting at my desk a couple years ago, and the lights started flickering. I thought that was weird. And my laptop started charging, stopped charging, started charging, stopped charging. And I was like, now what's wrong with this power cord? And I plugged it in, restarted the computer five times, and then the lights started flickering again. And I thought, what is going on? And then we heard a pop and a sizzle and a boom outside the church. So all of us walked out back and we discovered the source of our problem. Check it out. Here's the source of our problem. The pole was on fire. <laughs> and so we noticed that and we stayed a safe distance away. And it started popping and flashing and flaring. And then ComEd had to show up with like seven trucks for like three hours. They worked on this pole. And they discovered that a squirrel had chewed through the line. The squirrel is no longer with us. And, and, and it knocked out power. We had our, we had our Awana Grand Prix scheduled that night. We had to cancel it. It was such a big mess uh, because of a squirrel. Now, if you want to find a solution to all of the problems that you have in life, you have to go all the way back to the source. Otherwise, you're just trying to fix the, the computer or, the, or figure out why the lights are... But if you, have, if you haven't gotten all the way back up to the source, you won't know the proper solution to fix the problem, and the problem will continue to happen. Today, we're going to see how in the book of Ephesians, God traces all of our problems back to the source of sin, and it's there that he provides us with the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. Here's a few pictures from the city of Ephesus, the city that would have re received this letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to this wonderful uh, ancient city. I don't know if when you think of 
ancient people, you think of them living in mud huts. Not so. This was a wealthy, powerful, well-developed city. Here's another picture. And this is the city where the church in Ephesus lived. And it was growing and it was booming. And and they got this letter from the Apostle Paul about what it means to live uh, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we're going to continue on in the study, which is called Glory in the Church. Glory in the Church. The idea is that Christ wants His glory to be emanating through us to the world in His church. Let me say a prayer and then we'll get into the Word together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us the very best that you had to offer. Last week we learned that everything heaven has to give is found in you. And we pray that as we open our ears to your word that you would speak to us and meet us in power today. We ask that you would show us your glory and help us to reflect your glory and use your word to form and shape our hearts and our communities. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I told you last week, this is like a 202-word run-on sentence that I'm preaching here, so thankfully I've cut it into chunks. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we're just continuing on with the thought. Even though this is a a rambly, uh, theological uh, masterpiece, you can cut it up into three basic sections. Last week we talked about God the Father's work in eternity past on our behalf. This week we're going to talk about God the Son's work in time, in history on our behalf. Next week, we'll talk about God the Spirit and His work sealing us for eternity, past, present, future. So let's get into it. Chapter 1, verse 7, here's what it says. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is a praise, this is a poem, this is a hymn, this is a declaration of why we love God. That's the genre of what we're dealing with here. And therefore, number one, you can jot this down in your notes. Praise you for what? For sending Jesus to die for us. Praise you for sending Jesus to die for us. It says in verse 7, in him, that's Christ, we have redemption through His blood, through His blood. Now these words, in Him, redemption, through His blood, are so deep. We're going to camp there for a little while. Sin is a universal problem. And the word redemption describes what the solution entails. Sin, according to God's word, is something we are all guilty of. And only God's Son, who shed His blood, can save us from sin. It mentions blood here, His blood. What that means is His sacrifice at the cross. Here's a picture of the cross of Christ. Maybe you've seen pictures of Jesus on the cross all your life, but no one's ever explained to you what's happening there. What's happening there is a person who's not sinful, Jesus, is dying in the place of all of those who are sinful, you and me. He substituted himself to take God's judgment for us. And therefore, as his blood was poured out, an atonement was made for your sin. A price was paid for our sin. And then he died and he was put in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again in triumph. And he ascended to heaven where he lives and rules and reigns today. That's called the gospel. God sent his son to die for us. 
Now, if you believe what I just told you, then the Christian faith says that you were born with a problem only a dead man can solve. How can you get out of your sin problem? Only Jesus. There's no other way. He is the way. He is the plan. Jot this down. Praise you for sending Jesus to die for us, to free us from slavery to sin. To free us from slavery to sin. The word redemption there means to be redeemed out of bondage, to be set free. And these three subpoints all show us the nuances of what it means for us to be set, set free from what? what? What do you mean I'm a prisoner? How am I bound up? Uh, we're going to take the three nuances the Bible covers here. It says to free us from slavery to sin. Israel in the Old Testament portrays your dilemma. Israel, of course, was under the rule of Pharaoh. Slavery and bondage, whips to their back, building another kingdom, can't go free. That shows us our spiritual condition. Then God sent a deliverer, Moses, to come and set the people free through the Red Sea. Here's a picture of Moses. How amazing was the life of Moses that, that even at, God, at, at God's command, the waters would go up and there'd be a wall on each side. And Moses leading the people through the Red Sea. Here's another picture. Moses leading the people through the Red Sea on dry ground is a picture of what Jesus must do for you to free you from slavery. Now, at that point, you can disagree with everything I just said. Oh, I'm not that bad of a person. I know bad people. I'm not one of them. Well, you're disagreeing with the Bible's uh, analysis of your predicament. The Bible says you're in bondage and you need someone to liberate you and to walk you through those waters of death into the land of promise. Therefore, you need to follow Jesus because he's the only one who can set your soul free from what? From bondage, from slavery. People don't like the thought of being called prisoners to sin. People don't like the thought of being enslaved to sin. Uh, but that is what the Bible says you are. How many of you heard the news a few weeks ago that Blago has been released? Raise your hand if you've heard that news story in Illinois. Everyone. It made news. National news. Former governor, disgraced governor has been released from prison because President Trump commuted his sentence. A lot of people have pretty strong feelings about this act because they feel like he's a guilty man who has been set free from prison. And um, that's the gospel. You're the guilty person and someone with authority in heaven has to commute your sentence, which, by the way, is a lot longer than Blago's was. And if he doesn't, you will never go free. Now, doesn't that just insult your sense of self-righteousness? How dare you compare me to him? Uh, welcome to the Bible. Welcome to the Bible. We are prisoners to sin. We cannot set ourselves free. And here's the thing. We are justly condemned. It wasn't an unfair trial. It wasn't some political coup. It, we deserve it. But God, but God from on high, 
would allow his son to pay off all of our sins. And from high, he would commute our sentence and say, set her free. And that's our only hope. That's the gospel. People make excuses. Some of you people out there make excuses to try and make yourself feel not as sinful as others. Of course, I'm including myself in these excuses too. Here's the excuses we make to make ourselves feel better about our sin. When, we, when it comes to breaking God's law, we compare. Well, I didn't break it as much as, as, as Blago wasn't selling a Senate seat or anything. I didn't do it. I, didn't, I wasn't as bad as my brother. Goodness, compared to him, I'm a saint. Comparing does not give us an accurate definition of, of our sin problem. Frequency. Well, I didn't do it as many times. There's only one time. There's only two times. Well, that was just a bad season in my life. And we feel better about our sin because of its frequency. Or intensity. Well, I didn't do it as bad as that. Per- you know, okay. Yeah, I mean, may- maybe, I, maybe I, sold a, I stole a few signs uh, and, and maybe I cheated in one game. But I didn't do it, I didn't do it as, as badly as other people, right? So intense. It, you know, I didn't win a World Series stealing signs or anything. So the intensity makes people feel better about their sin. The duration. Well, it didn't go on for that long. I mean, I got it figured out right away. Or the damage. It didn't hurt anyone. No one even knew until you brought it up. Or ignorance. I didn't even know it was wrong. These are all of the ways that we make ourselves feel better about our sin. Here's the problem with that. All of these deny the nature of sin. The nature of sin is what makes it a killer. A killer. The nature of sin is what makes it shackles and binding. Because even the smallest amount of sin binds us up to sin. And we can't go free. And sure, we could get the comparison, the frequency, the intensity, the duration, the damage, the ignorance. But it's the nature of sin that makes it against God. I shared the story about how my wife made a dessert cupcakes and we had it in a glass bowl. The glass bowl flipped over to family party and little glass flakes got on the cupcakes. Now was the problem how many glass flakes got on the cupcakes? or the size of the glass flakes, or how many times she had done this in the past, what was the problem? The nature of the substance. Even the smallest amount is something we would not give to the children at the party. So all of this reasoning gives us a false understanding of who we are. And the Bible is very clear. If we say we are without sin, we make God out to be a liar. Liar! Pinocchio. That's what happens when we say we're, out, we're without sin. Praise you for sending Jesus to die for us to free us from slavery to sin. Has Jesus freed you from slavery to sin? Next, to rescue us from fear of death. Bondage is portrayed in the Bible as having fear of death. All the days we lived with a fear of death. Death is the outcome of sin. The wages of sin is death. And therefore, we are bound to death. We are bound to destruction. And therefore, we're afraid of dying all of our lives. Jesus came to free us from the fear of death. Now, everyone right now is afraid of the same thing in the world. What is it? The coronavirus is coming. The coronavirus is coming. Run to Walmart and buy some masks. We're all going to die. Or those of us who haven't prepared properly. We're all afraid. Everyone's freaking out. The stock markets are tumbling because of the coronavirus. And this is just one way that it shows that we're afraid of what could happen. We're afraid of what can happen. And that's bondage. Bondage, fear of death, is what happens when we know that we're going to die. 
I like the, I like the uh, Surgeon General basically sent out a tweet this week, and he's like, calm down and stop buying masks. <laughs> what? He's like, the people who need the masks are the medical professionals who are around the sick people, not the well people. If you take them away from the medical professionals, you know, so he's trying to calm everybody down. Um, the fear of death. The way, I, the way that I deal with things when I'm afraid of death is I, I just find a bigger problem to be afraid of. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you right now by giving you something bigger to fear than the coronavirus. Uh, do, you know, do you know, have you heard of black holes in space? Do you know what those are? Here's a picture of the biggest black hole known to man up until this point. It's uh, the black hole at the center of the Phoenix Cluster. And that right there is the size of our solar system. You see that? And you can't vaccinate that! So uh, there are much bigger things to be afraid of. And uh, what we're really afraid of is we can't avoid it. Our day is coming, right? Our day is coming. Oh, we can run, we can hide, but there's a day circled on the calendar and you will pass over to the next life. And then what? And then what? And then you can't wear your mask there. And then what? Are you ready for that? Jesus came to rescue us from our fear of death. And listen, you live on the brink of eternity every day. And I've got good news for you. Death does no permanent damage to the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is just a doorman. I worked at Walmart when I was in college, and the doorman stood there and opened the door, and the door opened. He said, hello, my friend. All day long, hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. And if you're a Christian, that's all death is. Death is just a door greeter welcome you into eternity. Do you know Jesus? Jot this down. Praise you for sending your... Jesus to die for us, to free us from slavery to sin, to rescue us from fear of death, jot this down, to release us from the power of darkness. Jesus alone can release us from the power of darkness. When it says here, in him we have redemption through his blood, redemption means to be freed from the authority and powers of darkness. That means in the spiritual realm, there are forces and powers greater than you. There's an authority and a kingdom rivaling God. And that kingdom spills over into our world. You're not controlled by things in that world, but that world spills over into our world and affects you on a daily basis. And the relationship between you and those fallen forces in the heavenly realms before you know Jesus is called slavery. You are in bondage. You are under the authority, and therefore you lose your battles with temptation. You're tempted and you're oppressed, and you can't be free of that. We are held prisoner to the forces of darkness and we're not members of God's kingdom before we're saved. But God sent Jesus to release us from the power of darkness. Jesus alone can do that. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Listen, transferred us. I was here, now I'm here. When have you been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness? I love the movies that make it clear that there is a darkness and there is a light and they're fighting. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. And so here's a picture of Gandalf versus a Balrog. Gandalf, who's been entrusted with the light, and the Balrog, who's dark and comes up out of the depths. And Jesus must lead us out of that dark, wicked, fallen mine into the light. Uh, that spiritually must happen to you or you're still in darkness. In darkness. 
praise you for sending Jesus to die for us. Have you been redeemed? Have you been set free by Jesus Christ from death, from sin, from darkness? In him we have redemption through his blood. Then it says the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Number two, jot this down. Praise you for forgiving all of our sins in Christ. Praise you for forgiving all of our sins in Christ. It says that we have forgiveness. That we have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The idea of forgiveness in the Bible means we have broken God's law. We have missed the mark of his expectation. We have done things we shouldn't have done, and we haven't done things that were required of us to fulfill all righteousness. Therefore, we need forgiveness. We need our sentence commuted. We need the the just penalty for our offenses to be taken away. Uh, We must be forgiven. Are you a forgiven person? Are you a person whose sins have been all washed away? Have you been forgiven by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Only at the cross can we find forgiveness. God doesn't just wave a magic wand over our sins and say, Abracadabra, and now they go away. He sent someone to pay the penalty in full. He had to, otherwise it wouldn't have been just. He couldn't just say, okay, well, I'll just let that one go. Well, now he's not a just God. He's a corrupt God. He's a wicked God. He's an evil God. Every sin, every small and big sin has to be fully punished. But God took that because he's so loving. He took that punishment on himself, on his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. And therefore, God can be the one who is both just and the justifier. Are you a forgiven person? The idea is that we can only be saved through God's mercy, not through our own merit. Many people live their whole lives thinking that they've got a pretty good grade in God's grade book. Maybe not an A. Certainly not an F. Not a D. At least a C. Maybe a B minus. I think most people would maybe give themselves a B minus, right? A B minus. Yeah, Mother Teresa's an A plus. I'm kind of a B minus. C plus B minus. And if that's your way with God, if you're thinking your grade in his grade book is okay, you're still operating on a merit-based relationship. I do enough good, he lets me into heaven. Um, you You haven't faced the reality that the Bible says that each one of us has a failing grade in God's grade book. An F. We each have a failing grade to fulfill all righteousness. I used to be a teacher... And before I was a pastor, before I was called into ministry, we got married in 2000. I was a teacher for four years. Do you want to see a picture of Teacher Ryan? Mr. Hall? You want to see a picture of Mr. Hall? Here's Mr. Hall. I was very astute. Here's Mr. Hall. This was some theme day. I think I was dressing up like a nerdy book character, uh, Encyclopedia Brown or something. But that was me as a teacher. And the, the students came in, and I graded their papers. And if they did a good job, they got an A. And if they didn't turn it in, they got an F a goose egg in the grade book. And if there was an F, I had to meet with the parents and the student and figure it out. And what we realized, so I know what it's like as a teacher to have to fail somebody, right? And um, when it comes to our grade in God's grade book, we have all failed to achieve the righteousness that he has decreed all but one. Only Jesus got a perfect score in God's grade book. And the gospel can be put in very simple terms. 
When Jesus came into the world at the cross, he took your F. You can write that down. He, he took our F. He grabbed your, the Bible calls it the record of debt, the record of debt. He grabbed your grade and he erased your name and he put his name at the top. Jesus took your debt. Jesus took your F at the cross. All of your failure on him. All of it. I'll take that grade for her. And then he died and rose again. And because of it, he got an A. A perfect score. And then he did something even more amazing. There it is. The perfect score. And he erased his name. And if you trust him, he writes your name at the top. Write that down. We took his A. We took his A. He took our F. We took his A. And we get a perfect score because he writes our name at the top of his work. Hey, listen. Plagiarism is the only way you're getting into heaven. You need to steal someone else's grade. Because if you show up with your work, your scribbles, your nonsense, you're getting an F. But if you take someone else's work that they did, you're getting an A. And listen, your grade must be perfect. God can't let any sin into heaven. Sometimes people have a problem with that. Well, why is God such a hard grader? I've had teachers like that. Listen, God doesn't demand a perfect score because he's a bad teacher. He demands a perfect score because you've been made in his image to dwell with him forever. And that requires perfection. He can't let any sin into heaven or it's not heaven. What do you want him to allow into heaven? Stealing? Assault? Lying? Which sin would you like him to allow in heaven? He can allow none or it'll ruin it. So it's right and just for a God to expect perfection in heaven. And the only way he can give that to us is through the work of his son. I read that the, uh, my daughter's getting ready for college. And, and so I, I read online, I was interested in test scores, that 2 million students take the SAT every year. 2 million students take the SAT every year. And only 0.025% get a perfect score. 2 million take it. 0.025% get a perfect score on the SAT. And guess what? Perfect doesn't mean perfect. Because even when they give you a perfect score, you have one or two mistakes in there that just because of the curve didn't quite factor in. Even perfect isn't perfect. Listen, when it comes to spiritually passing the test, you think 0.025% is hard to hit, uh, one person has gotten a perfect score in the history of humanity. His name is Jesus. It makes him one of a kind. And because he's willing to share his grade with you, and because he's willing to take your grade away from you, you can be accepted by God. That's what it means to be forgiven. Have you brought Jesus all of your failure and said, I need you to take this away from me and watched as he erased your name and wrote his name? Have you done that? And then have you looked at the marvelous thing he hands to you, a perfect score, and he erases his name and says, you just need to put your name at the top. Have you done that? I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. That's grace. Praise you for forgiving all of our sins in Christ. Number one, praise you for sending Jesus to die for us. Number two, praise you for forgiving all of our sins in Christ. Jot this down. Number three, praise you for revealing your heavenly truth. 
praise you for revealing your heavenly truth. It goes on in verse 8 to say this. Forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. There's a lot in here, and so look back at verse 8. It says here, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It says also that he gave us the riches of his grace in the verse before this. Listen, God is not a stingy God. God is not pinching pennies up in heaven trying to keep you as miserable as humanly possible. He is opening the floodgates of the riches of heaven. And he is, he is making you a, an heir of the king, of the kingdom to come. And he's doing it through his son. And so therefore, God's revealing this heavenly truth, his desire, how? Through Christ. It says he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. So it was concealed, the fullness of it, in the past, but now it's been made known through Christ, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Here we see a God who's not just making it up as he goes along. He's not just improvising. He has a plan, an eternal plan, and that plan is the Lord Jesus Christ. A plan for the fullness of time. So there was a time where he united all things uh, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Bible says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And therefore, we're making disciples for him. Praise you, the Bible says, for revealing your heavenly truth. How do we know about God's wisdom and God's plan? Well, I remember the wise men. Do you remember the story of the wise men? little Christmas story for you this morning. The wise men came from afar, right? And... Uh, and they came into Jerusalem and they caused all this commotion. They were, they were rich, they were powerful, they were smart, they were, from, they were from far away and everybody gathered around them. But people don't realize how interesting it is that they were following a star and that the star took them to Jerusalem. Now that's interesting. That's very, uh, it's not safe. Oh, oh star of wonder, oh star of light, where are we going tonight? <laughs> they go into Jerusalem to walk up to the king and to say, where is the one who was born king? Well, the king will have a problem with that question. What do you mean the one who was born king? Why would the star do that? Well, then the king called forth the scribes and the scribes bought, brought the scrolls. What, where is the one to be born king? And they pulled out the word of God. And it was in those scriptures that they found Bethlehem. The star took them to the word of God first, then took them to the Son of God. And listen, this is exactly the same way God brings you to him. There's something that gets your attention. Maybe it's not a crazy star in the sky. You know, Get in the car, kids! Maybe it's not that. Something gets your attention and makes you look up. Then God leads you where? He leads you to his word so that you can hear the promises that were made from of old. And then, based on your reaction to that, it takes you right to his son. And then, will you fall? Will you fall and worship the one who was born king? Creation led to the special revelation in the word, led to the son of God, which is the fullness of the plan. That's how we get saved. 
God wants to reveal his heavenly truth to you. Is God using something right now to get your attention? Something to wake you up? Something to make you look up and wonder what he's doing and where he's at? Something to get you to pay attention to the more important things in life? God can use anything. He can use something that's incredibly painful to get you to stop and look up. God can use tremendous guilt within or a paralyzing fear that you can't shake or a relationship that you can't fix or a financial crisis that you can't solve. He can use anything. He can use anything to get you to look up, look up, look up. And maybe he's giving you a wake-up call today. Look up, look up. And, and maybe for too long you've been just hitting that snooze button. The alarm goes off and you just, no, I'm not, no, not today. I need your attention. No, I, I mean, I'll do it later. Hey, hey, this is serious. No, I, I, maybe you've been hitting snooze, snooze for decades. Maybe God's been trying to get you to look up for a long time. He's trying to reveal his heavenly truth to you. Jot this down. Jesus is God's eternal plan to save us. It says, making known the mystery of his will set forth in Christ. Set forth in Christ. The mystery of God's will is fully revealed and set forth in Christ. Have you understood that Jesus is what it's all about? Have you understood that Jesus is the point, the purpose, that, that all of God's wisdom and plan is found and stored up in the Son of God? Have you received him as God's plan from beginning to end? Is, is he your plan? Praise you for revealing your heavenly truth. Jesus is God's eternal plan to save us. And then jot this down. Jesus holds all authority in heaven and on earth. It says, making us known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven, that's a lot of things. There's a lot of things in heaven, a lot of people, a lot of places, a lot of beings, angels, to unite everything in heaven in Christ and everything on earth. There's a lot of things on earth, a lot of people, a lot of countries, a lot of different places to unite it all in Christ. And that means your destiny is bound up in the one who died and rose again, who lives forever as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is he the center of your existence? All in eternity, all in history, all on earth, all in heaven. That's who Jesus is. Does Jesus mean everything to you? Have you recognized your place under his authority? Have you admitted your eternal peril? Have you accepted his generous gift of eternal life? Are you thrilled at the thought of seeing him? It's a simple question. Are you going to heaven? Are you going to heaven? Don't settle for maybe. Listen, don't settle for maybe. Don't settle for I, I think, I think so. God's making his will known to you today. Today's the day to nail it down. Don't wait another day. And listen, don't let Satan lie to you. It's never too late to tell God you're ready. It's never too late to tell God you're ready. Don't listen to guilt. Don't listen to fear. Don't listen to shame. 
right here, right now, you can bow before the one who was born king. We're going to bow our heads right now, close our eyes, and we're going to pray as we close out this message. I want to give you a chance to talk to God. I want to give you a chance to respond to what you heard. I want to give you a chance to just have an honest conversation with the one who died and rose again for you. Let's close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. And let's have an honest conversation with God. Father in heaven, I know there are some here today and they know that coming in here, they were still trying to do it their way. They were, they were still trying, desperately trying to fix it on their own. They were still desperately trying to earn your favor. And here today, they hear that that's not the way it's done. That they need something that only Jesus can provide. And so I pray, O oh Lord, and I give them a chance to talk to you. And you might want to talk to God right now. You, want to, you might want to say this, Father in heaven, I have failed. Say that to him. I have failed to meet your standards. Tell him the truth. He already knows it. I failed to meet your standards. Jesus, take away my failure. Take it all away. And then say, I believe, Jesus. I believe that you died for me. Give me your righteousness, Christ. Ask him for it. Give me your righteousness. Make me perfect in heaven by faith. If you prayed that to God, the Bible says that you are forgiven. You're spotless because of the blood of Christ. And you will be welcomed into the kingdom of Christ forever and ever. Father, we all pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand up and let's sing together. It's running after, it's running after.